are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. Our first reading is Psalm 34, verses 4 through 8. I sought the Lord, and He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. The second reading is Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? My name is Kurt Hinkle. I'm a member here, as many of you know. It's good to see you here on July 3rd. I always wonder what it means when Bjorn asked me if I would preach on a holiday weekend. (laughs) So Bjorn, and to the thousands and thousands that are watching online, hi. (laughs) We've been working our way through, as Barb mentioned, a series focused on God's character and his attributes. In other words, what is God like? Today, we're going to focus on the attribute that God is good. So far, we've discussed a number of attributes. Sonia kicked us off by talking about God's being eternal and infinite and unchanging. Bruce Powers, a few weeks ago, talked about God's sovereignty. That is, he is the Lord, the ruler, the king of the universe. A couple of weeks ago, Bjorn described the self-sufficiency of the triune God. Last week, Bjorn discussed some of the omnis, omniscience, all-knowing, and the omnipresence of God. So this week, we're going to look at the goodness of God. We're going to dig into a couple obvious questions when we say God is good. First question is, what does it mean to say that God is good? What does that mean? And then how does one know and experience the goodness of God? The first question is more of a theological question, understanding God's goodness. The second one is more practical, the so what type of question. So what do we mean when we say God is good? I suspect for many people it is a bit like saying God is love. Each of those statements, true as they are, seem like proper Sunday school type statements, the things you're supposed to say. It's his job to be good. It's his job to love. 
but they don't serve us well in that context of just a neat statement. They don't help us to take a deeper understanding and a deeper leap into the understanding and relationship with God. A few months ago, I was talking with one of our grandchildren about what they were learning in Sunday school. And they said, all they do is tell us that God loves us. And I already know that. (laughs) Statements like God loves us and God is good can easily become what one might call a simplistic bumper sticker theology. Or now window decals. They're great sayings, but they're out of sight. Or if it's a decal, it's backwards. But they don't serve us. Oh, good. I'm glad somebody appreciated that. <laughs> They're great statements, but they don't serve us well. I suspect that most of us want something more than just bumper sticker theology. So let's look into the more theological question. What does it mean that God is good? So the reading in Psalm 34, the psalmist David said, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. The ancient Hebrew word for good is tov. Looks like tob, but it's pronounced tov. And it's spelled T-O-V in modern Hebrew. This word tov appears in the very beginning of the biblical narrative in the creation story. Tov is the very word used to describe how God viewed his creation project. We read from the creation story in Genesis 1, some of the examples. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Tov. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. And God saw that it was good. He also made the stars. God sent them into the vault of the sky to give light to the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was Tov. Have you ever viewed pictures from the Hubble telescope? If you haven't, you should. HubbleSight.org. You need to go there. They are amazing. This picture is peering deep into our galaxy, the Milky Way. Do you know how big our galaxy is? It's 100,000 light years across. Keep in mind, a light year is 6 trillion miles. That means our galaxy is approximately 600 quadrillion miles in diameter. Its thickness is about 20,000 light years, a mere 120 quadrillion miles thick. And there are a couple billion stars in our galaxy. In other words, probably a couple billion other solar systems. And there are a couple billion, actually there's billions of galaxies in our universe. This is a taste of God's goodness, his creation. As fascinating as the Hubble photos are, the recent launching of the James Webb Space Telescope 
is a hundred times more powerful than the Hubble. And we will begin seeing some of their images later this month. I think we've seen one or two already, and they peer deep, deep into God's good creation. Much closer to home, only a couple thousand miles away, is the Muir Woods National Forest, just north of San Francisco. Barb and I had the privilege of walking amongst the giant redwoods a couple weeks ago, taking in the splendor of God's good creation. After God created most of his universe that he called Tov, he then created humanity. So back to the story in Genesis. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Notice in this story, in this passage, in this narrative, that the word created is repeated three times. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This thrice peat isn't simply a form of poetic creativity. In Hebrew tradition, if something is said once, it's important, but probably no more important than anything else that's been stated. If it's stated two times, it carries more weight, demanding one pay a little more attention. However, if it's repeated three times, it is exponentially important. In other words, stop what you're doing, lean in, and pay attention. As good and as important as all of this huge creation of God's is, the creation of humanity is the pinnacle. That's what that's telling us. It's exponentially the pinnacle. We can begin to see the goodness of God through his creation. And somehow, as human beings, we are woven in and through that goodness. So after God's creation project and after the creation of humanity, this is what God said. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Tov meod. Very good. So if you hear anybody say tov meod, that's what that means. And it's talking about how God viewed creation after the creation of humanity. Phonetically written, it's T-O-V-M-E-O-D, tov meod. So God is good. Our understanding of God's goodness comes from the biblical narrative. The creation story points to God's intrinsic goodness. It is who he is. It's an objective reality of his character. And those working their way through C.S. Lewis's abolition of man with grace will understand what I mean by objective reality. As the biblical narrative developed, we continue to see God's goodness manifested especially as it relates to humanity. Sin entered the picture, disrupting God's good creation. To restore and, and redeem his good creation, God called Abraham and his descendants to be an integral part of the redemption project. 
Abraham's descendants, God's people, were called to be a blessing, to communicate God's objective goodness to the world, to the rest of the world. As you may recall, they taxed God's goodness. They constantly turned away from him, chasing after other gods and idols, proving to be unfaithful to him and to their calling. But God, in his goodness, remained faithful and loyal to his people and his commitment to redeem the world. The story culminated with Jesus entering history, with the good news that God's kingdom had broken in and complete redemption was now on the horizon. This is what we call the gospel, good news. Don't miss the significance of that. In the middle of this narrative, about a thousand years before Jesus, David found himself running for his life. A jealous King Saul was out to get him. Though David had been anointed to become the next king, survival itself was in doubt. It was during this time that he likely wrote Psalm 34. What we know of David is he was called a man after God's own heart. And we see that in this song, in this psalm. He said, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Given his history with God, he could say with confidence, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. He's running for his life. And he delivered me from all my fears. And then pointing to the rest of the people saying, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. In other words, David could say, and we can say, God has our best interests in mind. When our kids were young, sorry, Jonathan, I'm going to tell a story about you. Whenever I needed to make a Saturday run to the hardware store or the lumber yard, and by the way, when they were young, they were two different stores, I would always grab whichever one of the four kids was available to go with me. The excursion usually included a stop at the local food bonanza to visit the Saturday morning food sampling stations. They were all over the store, and we just kind of wandered around and sampled As the kids got older, it took a little more encouragement to get them to drop what they were doing to join their dad as he ran his errands. My usual enticement came in the form of, have I ever steered you wrong? When Jonathan, our youngest, was about 11, we were living in the Memphis area. One Saturday morning, I needed to make a Home Depot run. Now the stores were one. And I took Jonathan with me. As we were driving, I asked him, do you know how much I love you? You know, that's what parents ask, hoping we get a good answer. We drove in silence for a while as he pondered his response. Then, in classic Jonathan style, he said, Well, you have never steered me wrong. <laughs> I suspect that David not only knew that God had his best interests in mind, he could say that God had never steered him wrong. So jumping back to the Matthew passage, Jesus talks about God as one who has our best interest in mind, who won't steer us wrong. 
He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil or sinful, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? This passage, I propose, is notoriously misused especially if we tend to lean toward a gospel of prosperity. Ask and seek, followed by receive and find, coupled with a statement of a Father in heaven who gives good gifts, and we immediately assume this passage is about asking for and getting stuff from God. But a good father doesn't give his children what they want. He gives them what they need. He gives them what's good for them. The Amplified Translation helps us see how Jesus was describing the goodness of God. It says, if you then, sinful by nature as you are, know how to give good and advantageous gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven Give what is good and advantageous to those who keep on asking him. Good and advantageous. What we need, not what we want. Keep in mind the context of this story, of these words that we just read. They are part of the Sermon on the Mount. In that famous sermon, Jesus was describing to his followers what life in God's economy looks like. And the life he described was proving to be significantly different than anything they had experienced. And it was significantly different than what they were hearing from the religious rulers of the day. These words about asking and receiving were embedded deep in this sermon. This is toward the end of the sermon. He had already told them of their call to be salt and light to the world. Which, by the way, sounds a lot like what God asked Abraham to do. As salt and light, he suggested they love their enemies, which were probably the Roman occupiers. And by the way, he was saying if a Roman soldier forced them to carry their pack a mile, which they could, that they consider willingly carrying it a second mile. That is not what they were hearing from their religious leaders. That was not their understanding of God's economy. Oh, and by the way, he said, and you can live life without worry. That was all in that. I can envision his followers looking at each other, <laughs> listening to this, and wondering how could they possibly live and operate as Jesus was suggesting. It's an obvious question. I'd be asking it. Given the context, I wonder if Jesus might have been saying to his disciples and to us to ask and receive the answers to their questions about kingdom living. Not stuff, but how do I do this? I wonder if Jesus might have been saying 
that God will honor your seeking and asking, giving you what is good and advantageous so that you can live without worry or judging others and maybe even possibly figure out how to love your enemies. After all, he has our best interests in mind. He won't steer us wrong. He wouldn't suggest such things if he didn't also provide a way for us to live thusly. So how does one know and experience the goodness of God? What does that look like practically? Let's go back to the Psalms. David said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Out of his experience with God, David was saying to the rest of the community, taste and see if I'm not right. Taste and see for yourself that the Lord is good. What does taste and see look like? In our table question, what is something that you love to eat or drink that you had to develop a taste for? I suspect that we name things that we like now (laughs) that we had to develop a taste for. I think of coffee. When I first started drinking coffee, it was mostly sugar and cream. And now give me a good, strong espresso, European style, and I'm in heaven. But I didn't start there. It's a process. Taste and see. I think that's what Jesus was communicating in this gospel. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be open. I don't think Jesus is saying ask. And actually it isn't saying. Ask is not a one-off query. Nor seeking or knocking. Ask, seek, and knock in this passage are imperatives. You know what an imperative is? Here's an example. Shut the front door when the air conditioner is on. That's an imperative. This is a present imperative. So an example would be always shut the door when the air conditioner is on. So here it means always be asking, seeking, and knocking. Again, the Amplified Translation captures the essence of this. Ask and keep on asking, and it will be given to you. Seek and keep on seeking, and you will find. Knock and keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. David understood this well when he said in the same psalm, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. The word sought in Hebrew is not a one-off question kind of thing. It implies following. And David was a follower. He followed God. He was after God's heart. And he sought the Lord on a continuous basis. He didn't say, I sought when I was in need. He continuously sought the Lord. Thus David was able to experience the Lord's presence in the midst of running for his life. Following God, following Jesus, is absolutely key to knowing and experiencing the goodness of God. Unfortunately, we as Westerners struggle to follow. Following implies a lifelong process. We would rather know the answers now 
Following is unpredictable because we're following a Jesus that is unpredictable. Remember the chosen? Get used to different. And by the way, though Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he's certainly not predictable. Westerners prefer clarity. Following is about trust. Trust and clarity tend to be at odds with each other. So following is key to tasting and seeing, knowing and experiencing the goodness of God. And the best way I know how to do that is by spending large amounts of time with the embodied goodness of God, Jesus. In Colossians, the Apostle Paul reminded his readers that Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. That is why I always suggest, and some of you have been part of that suggestion, that people that I meet with on a regular basis, that I mentor or train, that they be immersed by reading the Gospels. How many have ever heard of the movie Babette's Feast? I thought it would be a few. (laughs) Babette's Feast is a foreign film made in Denmark, Danish film, made maybe 35-ish years ago. It's an 18th century story of two spinster sisters who lived in the coastal village in Denmark. They had committed together to care for the small and dwindling parish that their late father had founded. At the request of an acquaintance, they agreed to take in this Babette, a refugee of the French Revolution, and employing her as a cook. They taught Babette to cook the cod and bread the way they always cooked it, bland and tasteless. What they didn't know was that Babette was a very good Tove Mayode cook. She was one of the most famous cooks in one of the most famous Parisian cafes. Unbeknownst to Babette, in her absence, someone in France continued to pay her annual entrance into the lottery, which she won. Everyone in the small village assumed that Babette would go back, get her winnings, and stay in France. Instead, she used all of her winnings to put on a dinner in honor of the sister's father's 100th birthday. She spent all of her winnings on an extravagant meal for a dozen people. One of the guests was a visiting general who had spent a fair amount of time dining in the finest cafes in Paris. Familiar with the palates and fare of the locals, he was prepared for a typical bland meal. Course after course, he was blown away by the taste and the quality that he recognized from what he had experienced in Paris. He appreciated and savored every morsel. In the meantime, the locals were just eating a meal. In fact, a foreign meal. In fact, one that they didn't even understand. 
and they missed the significance of Babette's feast. Here's my closing thought. God's goodness surpasses all we can imagine. Tasting and seeing, asking, seeking, and knocking opens our eyes to a goodness that exceeds our limited imaginations and expectations. If we are not consistently tasting and seeking the goodness of God, I suspect there's a possibility that when it does show up, we may not recognize it. Something worth pondering. Oh, good God, we do thank you for the privilege of coming together in this place. We thank you for the freedoms that are ours in the United States of America. And as we celebrate, Lord, our independence as a country this weekend, would you cause us to be mindful of our interdependence on one another as your goodness is reflected in the people around us? I pray safety and protection over this body as we celebrate. And we thank you for the ultimate freedom our freedom in Christ. Jesus Christ, the one who taught us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with his favor and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.